Welcome to this BMJ COVID podcast. I'm Fee Godley, Editor-in-Chief of the BMJ. As the world sees an upsurge in COVID infections, this second wave feels different to the first. We have a much better understanding of the biology of the virus, guidelines for patients in hospital have been rapidly developed, and we have a pipeline of research to improve that and also our public health response. But a lot of questions remain, particularly about the dynamics of the spread of respiratory viruses, which brings us onto this episode. In these weekly discussions, our panellists, clinicians from across the health service, will be joined by experts so we can find out more about the issues that really matter to frontline staff. Today on the line, I have Nizreen Alwan. Nizreen, why don't you introduce yourself? Hi, Haki, thank you. Uh, I'm Nisreen Adwan. I'm an Associate Professor in Public Health at the University uh, of Southampton. Um, and so I'm based near Southampton. Lovely. And Helen Salisbury? Hi, I'm Helen Salisbury and I'm a GP in Oxford. And Matt Morgan? Hi, I'm an intensive care consultant based in Cardiff, where we currently have the fire break and a wet, windy half term. Lovely. And our expert guest, Carl Friston. Hi, I'm Carl Friston. I'm a professor of neuroscience in London at University College London and recently have become an amateur epidemiologist. Wonderful. Uh, Carl, can we begin with you? Um, You've written a a couple of really excellent pieces in the BMJ for our opinion section. Um, And the most recent one um, uh, talks about the difference between second wave and secondary wave and argues for as I understand it, a national circuit break. Could you just give us um, your summary of that that very good piece? Right, well, it's an important distinction between a secondary and a second wave in terms of how they're caused. So the idea is that there are two ways that a second phase or surge of infections could manifest. It could be that we lose immunity and indeed, you know, recent... Um, academic studies suggest that there are declines in the antibody. Whether or not that means that we actually have a loss of effective immunity uh, is yet to be seen. So the notion here is that you will be exposed to the first wave and then several months later it'll come back and reignite um, the infection in your community and you will get a second infection. So that may be the mechanism that underlies things like seasonal influenza. There's another explanation though, which is probably more pertinent to what we're experiencing at the moment. And the other explanation is that the virus is now completing its tour of the UK and is entering communities that previously were less exposed. And those communities can be so large scale communities like the North versus the South, or very small scale communities like student uh, halls uh, with lots of uh, freshers in them. Uh, they can be at the level of um, local health authorities. So it's important, I think, to, to discriminate or distinguish between a secondary wave where you are now becoming exposed. It's, it's, the ti- it's your time to contend with the infection uh, in virtue of where you're living, uh, as opposed to uh, it's come round again and I've lost immunity. It's important to distinguish between those two because the ways that we would contain and suppress community transmission are very, very different. If it's the case we've lost effective immunity, then the only thing that's going to really help us is going to be uh, the acquisition of population immunity, hopefully with uh, with vaccination. However, if it's a spread, a slow spread, a slow burn around the regions of 
the uh, four nations, where the virus reaches regions that hitherto has not um, has not reached. That speaks to an important form of reducing contact and transmission rates, not necessarily by social distancing, but by restricting fluxes between communities. So that now brings into, into focus the potential importance of the, you know, for example, the Welsh firebreak, but not firebreak in time, but in space. So precluding transit of people uh, from hotspots in, in, say, England into Wales. So that's the that's the basic uh, you know the the, the, you know, the the basic argument. It looks, looking at the quantitative modelling, as if we are experiencing a secondary wave at the moment. And the most compelling evidence for that is if you just look region by region um, at the current infection prevalences during the secondary wave relative to the first. Um, wave, then those places that had an attenuated first wave are now suffering, you know, largely in the north of England and possibly some communities in um, in London, they're now suffering uh, the greatest um, burden at the present time. So that suggests a sort of a spatial temporal, a geographical dynamic at a much larger scale that could be sensitive to things like travel restrictions fire breaks and uh, circuit breakers. Thanks, Carl. That, that, that's fascinating. Uh, Nizreen, uh, and then I'm going to ask Helen and, and Matt to, to quiz you on these things, but Nizreen, the, the whole issue about um, the balance between population immunity and local or national restrictions um, and trying to suppress the virus at the, at the two extremes has obviously become very heated debate in, in recent weeks. And you're a co-signatory of the John Snow Memorandum, which made the point for the um, suppression of the virus rather than letting it sort of rip through communities. Uh, can, you, can you tell us a bit about the, the, the polarisation of that debate and, and where you think things stand, where the evidence is, is, is strongest? Like you said, uh, I, I did co-author the Lancet letter and, and uh, a co-signatory of the John Snow Memorandum. And, and really where I thought and my colleagues thought at the time is there isn't so much of, of a polarisation. Um, there is um, the, the Lancet letter, uh, which the John Snow Memorandum is based on, is, is starts with, um, it's called a scientific consensus on the COVID-19 pandemic, because we do believe there's a, there's a majority scientific consensus on how to tackle this, which is basically uh, to try and um, um, uh, uh, you know reduce community transmission uh, as much as we can. Um, and indeed, um, there's been also a document recently re released by Sage uh, on on the strategy of segmentation, which completely supports uh, what 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 the letter uh, states around. Um, uh, the impracticality, really, of the segmentation approach, which is basically says uh, you can. Um, you know, protect, you have a focused protection of people who are at high risk and then um, not do much at all in terms of reducing community transmission for the rest. And, and the SAGE document is actually worth a look. It's a short document, but it really uh, very succinctly describes as well why this is uh, is not possible at all. I think it's healthy to, um, to communicate um, uncertainty in the science uh, and to be to be really uh, transparent about that uh, but also I think we know we know uh, for sure really now and I think it, there is a consensus that's the best ways to um, uh, you know the best way to protect people at risk is really to protect everybody and reduce community transmission uh, as much as we can. Thanks very much Nizreen. Helen over to you. I just wanted to um, to ask Carl some questions, really, about about the modelling side of things and and 
trying to work out what do we, what do we know. Um, I'm particularly interested in what would be the most effective things now to reduce the, the height of this secondary wave. Um, uh, a, lot of, a lot of us in primary care are kind of embraced position for this wave to hit us and we'd really like, if possible, we could keep that as a small wave. Um, and what would do that? Is it about getting results to people more quickly? Um, is it about contacting people in a timely fashion? And I know that really isn't happening, very happening. Or um, is it about um, people who are asked to isolate actually being able to isolate? And I wondered if the modelers have any kind of quantitative idea about what each of these steps or what each of these factors might do uh, to help us damp down that wave. Well, excellent question and actually speaks to the sort of um, the consensus approach that Nisreen has just articulated and I think is very clearly stated in the John Snow Memorandum and indeed a lot of, uh, I think that is a general consensus from both Independent Sage and the all-party um, uh, uh, parliamentary group, um, COVID Secure UK. So the three options, the three mechanisms that you've just described um, can all be put into dynamic causal models of, um, of viral spread. And then you can adjust the parameters, the rate constants of these models and see what would have happened if we did that at this time. Um, and the answer to your question is all three. Um, I think um, usefully summarized as, as augmented enhanced contact tracing that certainly rests upon an efficient testing program with timely results delivered to local uh, healthcare. Um, the model doesn't know whether this is prosecuted by call center um, uh, sort of governmental central schemes or is done in the only way that it probably can be done with expert, uh, you know, um, with the expertise and the infrastructure available to public health. Um, um, uh, so I think in, um, our recommendations from the independent sage, you know, the restructuring would, would, would look a little bit like you put NHS England in charge and they oversee the directors of public health. So it's all mediated and integrated, integrate pillar one and pillar two, use the NHS virology labs and, and enhance the testing so that the results are made available to the local um, directors of public health and all their teams and, and their collaborators. So. That seems to be the way that um, places like um, Germany, Taiwan, Singapore have all done it. They've done simple things well, and the simple things are what we've always done, and they've always been essentially uh, good old-fashioned public health measures as you respond to uh, as you respond to um, the um, the virus. From the point of view of the quantitative modelling, the only thing that's going to um, suppress and hopefully eliminate, but not eradicate, um, eliminate community transmission is indeed contact tracing, nearly identifying those people who are asymptomatic uh, but infected. So they're pre-infectious. So the only way you can do that is to find the contacts of um, uh, cases that have been identified by testing, which tells you immediately you've got to have a reasonably efficient testing program but that's only going to catch a small proportion of people who are infected so you have to get as many people of, of their as many of their contacts as you can identify and then support them in isolation so quantitatively it looks as though at the moment we're identifying about 20 percent of new infections per day 
with the current very, very high um, testing rates that we have in the UK. Um, if one were able to um, isolate and support in isolation 80% um, of the 25% that have been identified, we're talking roughly 25% of new cases every day who are going into supported self-isolation. That would have very little effect at the moment because the, the, um, the prevalence uh, of infection is too high. So the fire is raging at the moment. But the modeling suggests that in about four to five, possibly six weeks, the, um, we will pass the peak of the secondary wave and the prevalence of infection will be sufficiently low to make that an efficient strategy. So the modeling suggests that if in December we can get our current efficacy of contact tracing up to 25%, um, then um, suppression is certainly a possibility, if one can do that. And but as you note, this all depends upon compliance. It all depends upon catching those people um, who are the contacts of infected people before they become infectious. So we're talking days and hours, not, 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 not days and weeks for, for the turnaround. Can I, I, you said we're expecting the peak, we're going to that peak and we're coming down. That's much more optimistic than I've heard. What is it that's going to make the, that peak, make that downward slope? Right, well, I'm probably going into trouble for saying this because everybody tells me I'm far too optimistic. <laughs> but I, I, all I can do is tell you what the, uh, the dynamic causal modelling says, given all the data at hand. Um, and... Um, the modelling very clearly shows that the um, reproduction ratio at the present time fell below one a few days ago. So if we now add in a couple of weeks for that to be manifest in terms of fatality rates, what we're looking at now is we've probably plateaued, or say in a week's time, we will plateau at about you know, between one and 200 seven-day average fatalities uh, per um, uh, per day, and then it will decline. So you have to ask, well, why did the reproduction ratio fall um, to levels. Just as an aside here, that seems inconsistent with the governmental uh, ONS statistics. But remember, these are estimates of the states of affairs a few weeks ago. Uh, so these things change quickly. When you introduce um, circuit breakers, fire breakers, regional, um, regional um, lockdowns, um, you could have a very, very quick within days effect on the actual um, acceleration of uh, transmission that is uh, quantified by the R. Um, so that um, reduction in the reproduction ratio is only explained by the efficacy of what we've been doing. So my optimistic position, it sounds optimistic, but I do repeat, it's just the quantitative evidence from, from, from the maths, um, speaks to the fact that, that the measures we've already taken have actually worked. Um, you know, there weren't perfect measures, but they have actually worked. We're now in a situation where things are, can only get better after a couple of weeks. So the main point is, what are we going to do? We've now bought ourselves some time and then we come back to the only thing that works. So if our objective is containment, suppression, and emulation, we've done the containment with the, with the firebreakers and the, and, the, um, and the circuit breakers uh, and you know, good community responses. Um, uh, and we bought that time, now we turn our attention to suppression and elimination, and the only thing that's going to work there is effective contact tracing and supported isolation mediated by a good old-fashioned public health epidemiology. 
Matt, over to you, your questions for Carl and for Nizreen, if you have any. Yeah, well, thanks both. And what I found really fascinating is is Carl's very tentative description of optimism and almost nervousness around optimism. And you know, I think that's half the problem at the minute. We, we, we want debate about what to do with facts. What we don't want is debate about the facts themselves. And if I interpret you correctly, what you're doing is you're giving an impression of, you know, what the facts actually are. That's not in, in jeopardy and your position according to that. And that's great. You know, we should be optimistic when we think things are working. And that's fab. Um, I guess what we don't want is misinformation, disinformation about the facts themselves. Uh, and I think that's a subtle difference. Uh, I, I'm in Wales where there's a fire break. I quite like the word fire break because it recognises that there's a fire to start with, as opposed to a circuit break, which says, well, there's no problem. We'll just break before there is a problem. So I quite like that difference. But what we're noticing here, and it comes back to what both of you have said, really, is that this feels like ultra local pandemics rather than a national experience. Now, I'm in Cardiff and out of the 40 critically ill people with COVID in Wales, half of those are in one very small health board hospital. And actually in the big tertiary centre in Cardiff, yes, we've got cases, yes, it's hard, um, but actually not like those other local communities. Do the epidemiological models that you're discussing and have been validated in the past, how do they deal with local versus these big national questions? Are they sufficient to do that? There are models that do exactly deal with that issue. I think it's a really important issue. And of course, it speaks to what we where we started, this sort of notion of the mechanism that underwrites a secondary way, this sort of between community as opposed to within community, community spread. So you have to put that into the model. Um, you can do that by having uh, certain kinds of heterogeneity, certain streams. Um, you know, you can, um, if you were a conventional epidemiologist, you might now uh, create a several parallel SEIR, so you know, a susceptibility exposed, infected, um, removed like models and run them in parallel with different mixings between those streams. Um, that has been applied um, um, by a number of people who, whose primary focus is uh, exactly, as you say, on understanding the transmission from region to region. So the experience in Wales, I think, is, you know, uh, I think, well, first of all, the, the Welsh response is a paradigm example of how to respond well to, to this community scale, regional aspect of viral spread. My understanding of the conventional models is limited because I don't use them because they're not equipped with the right kinds of states or factors that allow you to plug in the effect of social distancing or contact tracing. Um, so I, I always know that, uh, you know, interesting, given you're in Cardiff, Wales is the most, and possibly Scotland, Wales is always very explicit and upfront about you mustn't travel more than five miles or, you know, beyond this. I think that's a very sensible and, and it speaks to sort of the distinction between mechanisms we can introduce that attenuate within community transmission that are distinct from mechanisms that we would have to consider to attenuate or suppress between community transmission. Uh, of course, the things pushing back against those local restrictions and those pragmatic boundaries, and I guess a, a question for Nizreen particularly, you know, the field of economics changed radically when behavioural economics by uh, 
Danny Kaufman and, and Amos Traversky and others was brought in, recognising that what humans do with the facts is just as important as the facts themselves. And when you've got these localised rules or pragmatic boundaries like five miles, that brings in behavioural science, I guess. And, and I guess the question for Nizreen in terms of public health and interpreting what the impact of the measures will be, is there almost a factor or a dial that can be turned that that allows for this interpretation according to a behavioural science perspective? In other words, what people will do with that information? Thanks, Matt. Um, so I'm not a behavioural scientist, uh, so I'm in public health. But what I do know and what we do know in, pub in public health really is, is, um, is that public health messaging um, needs to be clear um, in terms of what we're asking people to do, when we're asking them to do, and not complicated. And even if there's uncertainty in the science behind uh, that messaging. And we've seen that in some countries where, for example, New Zealand, I think, I think it's a shining example, really, because the uncertainty in the science was from the very start communicated. We don't know about these things. However, based on uh, what we do know and, you know, precautionary principle and we don't we want to save lives. We're asking you to do this and this and this. And the message has always been clear. The strategy of what the government was trying to achieve was clear. The public health message was clear. So there's, there was community solidarity and, 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 and kind of everybody working towards the same goal, which we did have in the UK at the start. But then we had all these different rules um, and restrictions. And maybe that touches on your local versus you know, national, I suppose. Um, th there was a mixture of different rules applying in different settings, some of them not clear, people always trying to clarify what they need to do. Uh, some people, including me, I mean, I work in public health and I was struggling to keep up with all the different rules of, you know, who mixes with what, when. Uh, so you can imagine, you know, how, com and, and actually you see people on the TV being asked about the rules and they say, well, we have no idea, nobody told us, we don't know. So I think it's about the, it's a lot about how these rules are communicated. And I think I want to I want to link that to my question to Carl because it is linked. Um, and I think part of the confusion is the timing. And I think um, that the timing of what we do um, is really crucial. Every almost everybody I think would know that we're going to need further restrictions. So then I think what the question to Carl is: um, it, we we always why can't we introduce this concept and, and use the modeling and use the data to say sometimes we need to take action before it becomes really, really bad because action is inevitable given where we are now and given the data that we're seeing and the modeling. Um, so the, it's the timing. I suppose the question is about the timing, um, Carl. You know, what, when, what do you think in terms of um, what, can we for the future, if we're going to live with this for a little while more, uh, introduce some um, some principles about the timing of introducing restrictions, how they fit in with kind of everyday life, with the lives of people, so that they understand them and implement them more easily? That's an excellent question. It reminds me of um, a lot of discussion um, around the time of the first wave, uh, where people were talking about sort sawtooth strategies, sort of, you know, a scheduled um, uh, lockdown that just knocked the virus on its head every time it sort of reared its head. Uh, and we've heard that more recently in terms of sort of phasing um, um, national lockdowns or certain restrictions for public holidays and half terms and the like. It also resonates with, with a call from a community that has not really been called upon, which is the control theoretic community. There's actually a control COVID group, uh, but they haven't really 
found the ears of government or indeed academia at this stage, but their premise would be exactly what you're speaking to. It's to treat the um, viral transmission, the pandemic, as a dynamical process, like, like a, um, a power plant. Um, and you've got a certain number of levers to pull. And if you carefully model it and you can anticipate the consequence of pulling this lever or that lever, then you can, uh, with some well-defined set of criteria, usually threshold criteria to invoke this or invoke that, then you can, in principle, um, manage the, um, manage the um, pandemic towards some tolerable, hopefully innocuous um, uh, endemic equilibrium. I think that's very viable. If that's the way it's going to go, I think modeling will be absolutely crucial. And you're absolutely right that the timing, you know, um, one analogy that um, I've used in um, in unpacking this for, for um, commentators and, and friends is, you know, you want to stop this swings, these recurrent um, secondary, tertiary, and if, if we carry on, recurrent waves, um, very much like you want to stop your child swinging on, on a swing. So, but you can only apply short, sharp forces or shocks. So, when are you going to apply that um, apply that force to stop the child swinging? It's actually at the point where they're moving the quickest. So you're pushing against the child as he as he sort of hurtles or she hurtles towards you, which means that you, as you say, you really need to um, use interventions that attenuate viral transmission at the point that the prevalence is rising the most quickly, which is before the peak. So it has to be very, very carefully timed. Thanks, Carl. I think that the, the, your analogy about the swing is, is really important because we've been thinking about uh, the, the kind of north-south divide in terms of the um, incidence of cases. And, and, and obviously the north have got much higher incidence. But actually, if you look, if you look at elsewhere in the country, the number of cases are rising everywhere. Um, um, so really, whether the, the question is whether, you know, so there's a rise in incidence of cases everywhere. Is it more effective um, to uh, uh, to apply some um, more restrictions in these in, in, in these in the places where they are not quite there yet in terms of how awful it is in terms of the cases in hospital admission? But um, we think they will get there. Yes, no, that, that, that would certainly be the. Um the conclusion of that kind of dynamical control theoretic um, analysis. Um, and to a certain extent, I think we're probably seeing that. Uh, and indeed, if we're not seeing that, you're certainly seeing um, uh, the Metro mayors, the directors of public health, and everybody else with the stakeholding for the responsibility for their community calling for that local data, that it will enable them to motivate timely decisions exactly along, along, the, along those principles. What I wanted to, um, what does strike me though, just coming back to, to, to one of your previous points about the, the end point, the end game here, and the importance of having an end game in terms of having a clear strategy that we can all commit to and subscribe to. And by all of us, I mean, not just the government, I mean, uh, you know, the community, the people actually um, living the virus and the pandemic. If you're proposing a, um, an, an, a never-ending succession of controlled waves. So beyond the secondary, there'll be a tertiary wave. The model suggests that will be um, sometime in the spring and quarterly and so on and so forth. That, to my mind, doesn't sound like a, a very um, optimistic strategy. Um, the kind of endgame I think that most people had in mind would be an innocuous endemic equilibrium, 
um, where we tolerate um, um, the fatality burden um, of COVID-19 at levels that were less than, say, seasonal influenza, or ideally um, elimination of community transmission. So that's going to require, we come back again to um, the, um, the shoe leather epidemiology and enhanced contact tracing. So I think without, again, in possibly being too optimistic, I, um, I think that that could be attained within the next few months. But more importantly, if it's a realizable endpoint, if it's a realizable objective, basically now contain, suppress and eliminate over the next few months, that to my mind gives a much more coherent and plausible strategy for people to understand why they are doing things um, at the moment. Yeah, I do think the lack of feedback right now, again, coming back to behavioural economics, is so hard. I mean, in Wales, we have this fire break. It's half term. It's raining. So we're staying in the house with uh, young children who have been very quiet during this conversation. Um, but doing that is hard when even the Wealth Health Minister says at the end of this period, we will not see a change in case numbers. And that's not because the intervention is not working. It's because this is a big ship which is turning very slowly. But even for people who understand that science and those metrics, being motivated by no change is hard. So I do think some aim of some metric would be great, even if it's just, I was looking at Google tracking data this morning showing you know, the numbers of journeys and the average journey duration is plummeted. Well, that's amazing as feedback to know that other people in your local society are doing similar things to you. So even if it's not the ultimate end game, I think knowledge of behavioral economics and those metrics would be really helpful. Can I just throw into the conversation this latest information from Imperial, Helen Wood and colleagues, about the waning of immunity that they found the first three months um, data they had showed about 60 out of 1,000 people with antibodies. And now the latest data, here are 40 uh, of 1,000 with antibodies, suggesting that it's really quite a short-term immunity, especially in the elderly and especially in those who did not have a, a, a heavy um, illness from COVID. Uh, does that change the 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 the, the way we need to confront yeah, this indeed. Uh, and, you know, we've come again back to this fundamental distinction between the mechanisms that underwrite a secondary versus a second wave. Uh, it's a really important question um, because it does dictate how we respond to it, and the pressure on developing a vaccine would clearly be much greater. Um, if we did lose effective herd immunity. But I use the word effective herd immunity here deliberately because simply showing that antibodies, uh, IgG, say, um, decline over time is not a surprise. Uh, and indeed, when we model that and put that um, that aspect into, um, into the dynamic causal models, that's exactly what you see. But it does not necessarily mean to say that there is a degree of protection still in play that could last for many, many months and possibly many, many years. So when you actually um, ask what period of effective immunity best explains the time course of the data up until now, actually, interestingly, including the Google mobility data that, that Matt was just mentioning. So we actually also try to explain that. That gets into these, these are more data that, that inform our best explanation for, for key um, or for the dynamics 
that hold the answers to the question you just asked. When you actually run these, these models, it looks as if effectively we do actually have a much more enduring um, immunity um, than one might associate with, say, seasonal influenza. So we're talking um, tens of months at least, as opposed to three months. So you can run the models under three months and you can run the models under 32 months. And the evidence of the models that we run under 32 months is much greater than the evidence of the models under three months. So purely from a quantitative modeling theoretical point of view, acknowledging complete ignorance of the immunology and the virology, um, the evidence suggests that as a population, effectively, we look as though we are acquiring immunity. And that makes sense because if that wasn't the case, if it was truly the case that as a population, we actually lost our immunity over, say, three months, and this would be like the common cold, that suggests that we'd be getting on average um, coronavirus three or four times a year, like a common cold. That simply cannot be the case if, it's, if it is the case that we're seeing this slow regional spread of the virus through the community. Thanks, Carl. Nizreen, um, you, you've written on long COVID and, and uh, I've written about your own experiences with long COVID. And uh, what are your thoughts on the immunity um, elements that, that, that tell us where long COVID is going to go in this pandemic? Um, I, I agree with Carl. I think there must be some level of, uh, of immunity, uh, you know, for at least some of the people getting infected. It, 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 the problem is that we don't know. And the long COVID context is um, there's a lot of anxiety in uh, many, many people who have not completely recovered from COVID infection, including uh, frontline healthcare professionals, key workers, about um, about this second um, secondary wave and and the exposure because um, we the completely unknown whether if you've had um, if if you have prolonged persisting symptoms from COVID, um, you know is are you are you immune? Are you more immune than others? Are you less immune than the others? What's your risk of reinfection? Um, all of these questions, I think we need to transparently talk about them and probably applies to primary care, um, you know, as well as hospital care and everywhere. We need, we need to acknowledge the uncertainty, but actually we, we, we shouldn't dismiss uh, people's anxiety uh, about, about this because we, we don't know who, who achieves immunity and who doesn't and for how, how long and what are the factors determining this. Thanks, Nizreen. Helen, um, obviously the best thing and part of the whole suppression of the virus will depend on people avoiding infection in the first place. How, how do you think um, we're doing on, on, on the messaging of that? I think that, that's really important because um, we're nowhere near getting to herd immunity. I don't think that's going to happen without a vaccine. I think everyone agrees that, at least not without huge harms um, on the way and an intolerable death toll and toll of illness. So I think our main concentration has to be on how do we prevent people from getting infected in the first place. Um, and the messages that went out to start with were, were quite simple. They were about social distancing, um, about washing hands, um, and about wearing masks. And I think there's been an evolving science. One of the things that I read that I found most interesting this week was about the decreased emphasis on fomite transmission. So this concept of you might pick it up on your hands from touching an object that someone infected touching has touched and a much more crucial emphasis on don't breathe in the air that someone infected has breathed out. Uh, and if you, if we could help people understand that that's the thing they need to avoid, then actually we might see fewer people just wearing a visor and no mask and sitting in the same closed air for 
you know, several hours at a time, that's clearly dangerous. There's a, there's a kind of a worry that I've got that people think that if you wear a mask um, and you're two metres apart, you are protected. And it's clearly not the case. Uh, and we still have things going on in our society that are clearly not safe, which is whole classrooms of people for hours on end, breathing the same air. Um, even if they're sitting two metres apart. One of, somebody I was talking to the other day was going off to an indoor spinning class, you know, stationary bikes, lots of them in the gym. It's fine, she said, we're two metres apart. And, um, you know, that really frightens me because the distance, okay, that helps, the masks help, but none of it is foolproof. And I think we need much more emphasis on the, how do you catch it? And that, that basic understanding it's from breathing the air that somebody else who has the infection has breathed out. Thanks, Helen. And that that you mentioned schools. Um, I, I'm really really interested in in Carl's view on on universities, um, the epidemics going on in universities, the very difficult position students find themselves in in lockdown um, without necessarily the right support. Uh, where do you feel that's going, Carl? The universities. Well, the university uh, situation was, you know, um, from an epidemiological point of view, a beautiful example of this so between community transmission. In fact, the creation of a new community that previously did not exist, basically communities of youngsters um, in close social contact in confined areas with the poor ventilation. I and mean, I, when I take my children to their university accommodation, you'd be lucky to find windows are open, you know, with these uh, you know, modern... Um, um, constructions uh, just to re-emphasize the importance of ventilation and, and, and you know um, just simply keeping windows open uh, for, for school teachers and uh, the residents of accommodation halls. Um, so that's a lovely example or a horrible example of creating a new community that is um, um, in a position not only to be susceptible to viral transmission but to also amplify it. So I think the the sort of notion of an amplification event here is, I think, a very useful one that speaks both to universities and to schools. So I think that it's a very vexed, vexed issue, education, because clearly everybody wants to protect education for all sorts of reasons. Um, and yet the um, educational, the institution and the all the events that surround getting to university or getting your children to school are perfect opportunities to amplify community um, uh, transmission. So in the summer, that seemed fine, that you know, um, only a handful of local authorities um, had sufficiently high levels of prevalence that there was something to amplify. So the advice was very clear, you open your schools essentially with gay abandon because there was nothing there to amplify. But now when we receive questions on the, you know, the weekly Independent Sage news briefing, a lot of them are from worried teachers, education um, uh, experts and, and parents. And you can't give that answer every, anymore because everybody now is living in an area where a school could have a potentially devastating effect in terms of amplifying um, infections in exactly the same way that um, the influx of, of students into key cities has tangibly, when you look at the data, um, increased the prevalence of infection and the, um, um, and, and the incidence. Um, so I, you know, it, it is a very vexed question. Uh, from the point of view of this heterogeneity of susceptibility and transmission, 
the nice thing is that young children, and we're talking sort of um, uh, sort of sixth form and below sixth form, um, they certainly have a reduced capacity um, both to become um, to uh, play host to the virus and also to uh, transmit it and also to suffer from it. Um, so the issue for, for I think sort of um, schools, primary schools, is more about their contribution to the community transmission as opposed to worrying about uh, teachers and the children per se uh, whereas for universities I think the game is different you know that students behave like young adults and they have a very different epidemiological contribution uh, to the dynamics uh, and I think we've witnessed that I think it's under control now just looking at the numbers um, so if you're careful dissection of wards in Manchester and Liverpool um, you know it's been a, a week or so since since the impact of um, having university amplification events um, um, uh, was at its peak. Thanks Carl uh, we, we need to bring this to a close uh, it's been a much more optimistic conversation than I had expected um, uh, that's probably Carl's you know your, your very objective view of, of the actual numbers I wonder if I could ease each Sorry. I wonder if I could ask each of you for your other reasons to be cheerful um, at this time. Let me start, please, with Matt. There's a long pause. <laughs> uh, no, I, I think we do need to continue to find joy and remember that life doesn't go on pause because of this. Uh, this is life for the last six months. This will probably be a form of life for the next six months. There will still be people having birthdays getting married, having children, uh, enjoying reading, painting, doing all those things they enjoy. And I guess in intensive care, when we see people at the brink of life, rather than make me depressed, that actually makes me appreciate life. And I think that's a benefit we have in that environment. And I think that's probably as important as ever to continue to find joy in the places that you do and you can. Thanks, Matt. Helen? Actually, strangely, I'm having joy in doing my ordinary job. COVID hasn't taken over my bit of primary care yet. I know some other parts of the country, it, there's much, much more and having more of an impact. But just now, I'm mostly seeing my patients, some face to face, some virtually, and treating their sorias or their angina or diagnosing their cancers or whatever it might be, the stuff that I'm paid to do as my everyday job. And that's still what I'm mostly doing and what I enjoy doing. And I'm just hoping I can hang on to doing that without COVID getting in the way. Thanks, Helen. Nizreen. The good thing for me really is that the long COVID uh, message is getting out there. Uh, people are talking more about it. More studies are being conducted. Guidelines are being um, um, uh, thought of in relation to long COVID and the black and white picture that we we saw up to uh, you know very recently a couple months ago of you know you either get it get COVID very severely and die from it or you'll be absolutely fine is um, is 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 you know there's a gray is being introduced there. There is this people who can get the illness and not recover from it, suffer from it for months. Um, and we need to think about them in any pandemic control policy um, that we do. Thanks, Nizreen. And Carl? Well, I, I was going to say, um, I think we can be more optimistic uh, in the sense that there's clearly a lot of anxiety around at the moment and everything feels out of control. But if you actually look at the numbers, 
we have controlled things. What we are doing has worked very effectively um, to the extent I think retrospectively we're going to be able to congratulate ourselves as a community for the way that we've, we've handled this. Even if, if it looks as though government policy is not complying with advice from public health experts, in fact what they're doing actually is slowly but surely uh, behind the scenes. However, you asked me about joy. I think there are lots of good things to look forward to. So I'm just taking this experience as a uh, an example. I would never have been able um, to talk to you, um, you know, via Zoom and have it all recorded um, in you know in my normal daily life. Daily life. So I'm actually looking forward to a new way of working, a new way of talking, a new way of progressing academia, possibly even a new way of of of, of uh, delivering um, healthcare. That, 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 that actually benefits from the, you know, all the fast unlearning and relearning that we've all had to do during the current pandemic. Thanks, Carl. Um, that's all we have time for today. Thanks to Nisreen Alwan, Helen Salisbury, Matt Morgan and Carl Friston for joining us on this podcast and also for their wonderful writing in the BMJ. As always, we want to cover the issues that matter to our listeners, so do let us know via social media if you have a topic you'd like us to cover or a specific question we could answer. We'll be coming back weekly with these second wave podcasts, so subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts. I'm Fee Godley, and I'll be back next week. Until then, goodbye, and thanks for listening. <laughs>